0: This is Elliot and Andy, and we're here with the Poor Pro's Almanac. And what are we talking about today?
1: If I remember, Meat Candy and Robin Williams. Brought to you by Lowry's. They are going to file a cease and desist order,
0: and they- they're probably going to be real salty about this.
1: Oh, he took my joke. <sighs> well, there goes my... God damn it, I forgot it already. <laughs> uh, my bacon salt pipeline joke is dead. I had it and I lost it. It's just gone. Much like Robin Williams. R.I.P. buddy. R.I.P. With that in mind, I guess we got to go make that bacon. This episode is part three, I think, of our silvo multi-species pasturama series, where we've been talking a lot about grazing and a little bit about Robin Williams and a lot about bacon. And all that in a forest setting.
0: There's mostly trees.
1: Mostly trees.
0: Mostly trees, because it's silvo pasture. so.
1: As I've learned from Elliot, silvo means forest. Yep. And pasture, we don't actually know, because both of us assumed the other one would do it.
0: I mean, I assume if you're listening to this show, you probably know what pasture means, but I'm sorry I let everybody down. Next time, I will do better.
1: No pressure, buddy.
0: No. This is, I, I gotta do better. Elliot, you got to do better. I
1: can do better. You can't. You must do better. Oh, that's Positive thinking. That
0: sounds kind of threatening, so... It's a little threatening. All right.
1: So, in terms of the silvopasture stuff, uh, we had talked a little bit about the logistical challenges of, you know, doing things like multi-species grazing, or in general, just grazing in a forest setting, or uh, trying to plant trees within a pasture setting, which can both be really, you know, daunting. So... Even though this isn't easy, it's important to remember the reason why it's not easy is because in a lot of ways, we're trying to accelerate the natural process of the ecology. The one thing we don't have right now is time, and we got to do what we got to do. That's what we're trying to do here. In case I didn't say do enough, like scooby doo 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 doo. No more do-do. Okay. So far, we've talked about species utilization and the ordering, and of course those rules aren't set in stone, but just a general framework of how to start thinking about these things. And we've also discussed some of the basics around tree choices that we've been interested in, specifically in how that relates to the local ecological conditions of our biomes, so that we help accelerate that forest succession while adding the benefits of the savanna landscape, which reflects a lot of what the indigenous forest management methods were done across the world. We covered a bit of this in the Pro Model series, if you'd like to hear more specifics on examples of how these systems have been in place and succeeded over the course of thousands of years. Now we're going to get a little more detail-oriented in terms of how that could look for you. So if you haven't listened to the first Silvo Pasture episode, I'd say really go check that out.
0: Yeah, it's almost like all the content from each episode springboards off the last episode. I've heard that like a thousand times, right?
1: I haven't. Or is it like a hundred? Or is nope. it like thirty? I don't know what you're listening to. It's not this place. Fine. <laughs> so we had talked about what silvopasture is, what order animals graze in, and what else? Brittleness, which means that livestock are really important in accelerating that process of nutrient return into the soil in certain ecologies more so than in other ecologies to keep the ecosystem from collapsing. So, like,
0: brittleness, that's your, like, new Beetlejuice word, where if you say it three times, you're going to become brittle.
1: If I say it three times, Alan Savory shows up and tries to genocide my people. Ooh. (laughs) That is salty. (laughs) Brought to you by Lowry's. (laughs) I think I just heard my phone ring. That's probably them. Uh, They calling you? Yeah, probably. Before we get into the episode, I do want to take a really quick second to talk about why it made a lot of sense to me to do the multi-species grazing episode with silvopasture. So while we did grazing in the past and we talked a little bit about multi-species grazing and we could have done multi-species as its own thing and then silvopasture as its own thing, it felt really important to understand that in a forest, not only are we dealing with the complexity of different species that can be utilized by different animals in terms of you know, the, the woody brush and, you know, The briars and low trees, and cutting tree hay, and all of these different things that are going to be utilized by different species. We also have those multi-species within the pasture itself. So there's just so many dynamic pieces that play into this that it seemed really important to make sure that it was framed within the context of a silvopasture system. So ultimately, I think this is where, for most of us here in North America, at least in the eastern half of North America. This is like the natural state of a lot of the, the landscape here. So that, it made sense to me, at least, to do it in this order. So if we're talking about managing forests for food systems and trying to align our management based on the natural systems around us, then by definition, those systems need those multiple species. And it's so important to tie those things together.
0: So we're doing the complex system stock again.
1: Yeah. This is episode one.
0: No, 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 (laughs) no, 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 no. I've
1: heard this all before. Okay, fine. I see how it is. No one wants to hear me talk.
0: I mean, if you do, you can go back and listen to previous. No, because we did a good job covering it, I think. That was our first episode, and we tackled a lot. Yeah.
1: In case you miss my voice, go listen to it again. And again.
0: And again. Well, I mean, that's part of the same conversation we're framing up. We're still talking about the same damn thing.
1: Yeah, and people just don't get enough of it. They're just like, you know what? Give me that complex system. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get into it. Let's get it. So with these uh complex systems in our forest, one of the things that we're trying to really focus on specifically within the context of multi species grazing is to utilize landscape resources more uniformly. And that's really what we want is we want the full cycling of the resources within the landscape and to continue to contribute to the local ecology by passing energy from one species to the next. By the time the last livestock species leaves an area, there shouldn't be any odd patches of ungrazed plants and no dropped fruit or nuts that haven't been nibbled at it, at the very least. Pastures, because of this, will generally recover more evenly and ultimately need less finish mowing, which is particularly challenging when you're working within a a forestry setting. You can't just bring in a big brush hog and chop everything down and if you do you're probably going to destroy some stuff you don't want to cut so it's that much more important to make sure everything is eaten down equally otherwise as we've all seen before you'll have these tall weeds and the the good grasses will remain short or the forbs or whatever it might be and ultimately because the only things going to seed are the ones you don't want because nobody's eating them that ends up taking over your your site and that's not what you really want So each species that eats different things uh, creates specializations and efficiencies. So while there are, you know, you could have a sheep eat a bunch of different things, it's not going to efficiently process certain plants as well as other species. So you're getting both benefits by using the multi-species grazing. And by controlling the setting, we can mimic all of this and accelerate that process. So let's look further at how the pairing of the forest ecology and the prairie together create a uniquely beneficial system for our animals. You might recall photosynthesis occurs under a pretty narrow band of temperatures and grasses growing in the shade, generally you might think of as growing more slowly, even though that might be somewhat the case because of access to the sunlight. Uh, They'll still continue to photosynthesize and grow even when their full sun counterparts have shut down because it's gotten too hot. So when those days are 95 degrees and above, you're still benefiting from having the the cooler temperatures underneath the canopy while grasses in an open prairie may not be getting that same benefit. So in this way, we're actually able to accelerate and get the benefit of the trees growing as well as the grasses growing. Further, it's not just about that temperature that can shut down photosynthesis. If we think about the chlorophyll in a leaf, it can be really thought of as something like a sponge. And this sponge soaks up sunlight as fast as it can, while some of that sunlight is being turned into energy to make sugars and carbohydrates. At some point, as it's doing this photosynthesis, it hits a point where it can no longer convert more than a certain amount of energy into carbs and sugars. So the term of this maximum rate is being light-saturated. And at some point, this extra energy gets converted into heat, which actually can slow down the photosynthetic process. Leaf temperatures can even become so hot that moisture loss can cause wilting and a further reduction in photosynthesis.
0: Right. So you're talking about the herb drying out, and then eventually it gets hot enough where you can like burn it, get that white ash. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So you're slow curing your pasture, but nothing wants to smoke it the worst kind of curing.
0: Oh, I was totally talking about weed,
1: but go on. Different types of weed. You
0: said weed, man.
1: (laughs) Your ears just perk up like a cat when they hear like-
0: Well, I thought you were talking about something cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm just gonna go back on my rants. Don't worry about me. Continue. Yeah, so in the savanna, with its tree canopy and grassy floor, you get this even dappled shade where forges can stay in their optimal temperature longer as well as light level ranges for a longer period of time, while also helping reduce water loss on the soil and assisting those leaves that are light saturated by building this multi-layered canopy. Further, by planting our trees in patterns that are not straight rows, we can create windbreaks. You know, we had talked in the past about keylines and go check out that episode if you're not familiar with keylines. And these can be a really good way to maximize water access and create natural windbreaks. But you don't need to do this. And even if you can't cut in key lines because of stumps, which is a challenge for myself, the natural shape of the land can be still really beneficial. Again, if we think about those windbreaks, they help stop dryness by stopping the, the air from coming through and removing moisture from the field. And they also stop wind-generated soil erosion, which preserves tons of topsoil. So if you think about like the Dust Bowl, like that's a really great example of when generated soil erosion plus poor farming practices. Further, using windbreaks is really good for your animals because it can protect them from those winter winds. And ultimately, they have to generate less heat to keep themselves warm, which means less feed, reducing either feed costs or making your pastures last longer and reduces things like animal mortality and just overall headaches. So windbreaks are really just the simple-to-understand, simple-to-plant, and simple-to-care-for practice. I'm pretty
0: sure we did a side episode with our prologues about breaks with the Osage orange and hedges, right?
1: Perfect product placement, Elliot. Look at that. Three peas in a row. Got I'm it. So proud of me. We absolutely did. Before the invention of barbed wire, ancient trees called Osage orange trees uh, were planted in these really thick rows at the edge of fields to keep animals in or out and to break the winds that would blow across the massive farmlands and not only this but indigenous people use hedgerows to manage their controlled burns and things like that so there's a long complex history of using things like hedgerows not just in places that people generally think of like the united kingdom but even here in the united states so let's transition from that to another kind of margin space which is repairing buffers so if you have access to a waterway repairing buffers are something that are pretty common so Let's just define that if you're not familiar with the term. A riparian zone is really that edge along the sides of a body of water. So the size of the riparian zone really depends to the extent on the size of the piece of water that you're dealing with. The land affected by say the Mississippi River is obviously gonna be bigger than the like pond down the street from me. So like windbreaks, riparian buffers tend to be um, shaped in a particular way next to whatever that marginal space is so with a windbreak it's going to be this long thin thing next to like a farm and with the like riparian zone it's going to be this long thin space next to a river or a pond or a lake or whatever it might be so that shape creates a really unique ecosystem and biome where you get this interaction between the the water itself and the the rest of the ecology the landscape before that riparian zone so it's kind of a transitional space now although riparian buffers don't necessarily prevent the original erosion in the first place they do perform this really important function as like a mechanical filter but not mechanical and uh like a sponge like whenever you have like runoff from like a farm or something like that because people are putting too much fertilizer in this in the ground or they have too many animals and the you know poop and all the other stuff is getting into the water, these riparian zones can really offer a a buffer from all this nutrient leaching into the water. Conversely, the riparian strips also act as a buffer to the velocity of the water from the rivers. Now, traditionally, the water isn't just randomly shooting into the landscape, but with like flooding and things like that, heavy rainfalls, the riparian zones have to absorb all that extra water so that it doesn't flood out fields and people's houses and whatever might be on the other side of that. So not only do you have these perennial root systems from things like willow trees, you also have like rodents and and wormholes and all these other things that help to absorb a lot of that water. So in this process, as it slows the speed of the water coming off of the rivers, it also is able to capture a lot of the soil particulates and all that other stuff, which, ultimately leads into having this really rich riparian soil. These zones are really great for things like dogwoods and other fast-growing plants like willows, birches, sugar maples, and we'd even talked a bit about black walnuts being really great for these types of sites. And all of these things can bring really great benefits for wherever we're working. So even with all of these uses from the tree crops, there's a lot of other things that come out of the riparian zones like prairie cordgrass which can be used as a fuel or a multitude of other things.
0: Yeah, so I think one of the episodes that we did also highlights um, the importance of that edge space with the Satayama landscapes in Japan.
1: Yeah, yeah, they understood the different layers of not only just the um, mountain, but the rivers that transected those mountains, and communities designed their food systems based on where they existed within those riparian zones and within the layers or the, the topographic heights of the mountains themselves.
0: Right, making those terraces was, uh, it was smart, it was great.
1: Yeah. They created
0: more. They, they used, what, more area to, to make more of those edge spaces.
1: Yeah, and traditionally, historically speaking, around river deltas is where farming has tr- always been until the last 2,000 years or so. And it's in those spaces that people really learned to do those annual agricultural processes because of the fact that that was you had good soil and you constantly got these flow of new nutrients coming into these riparian zones and you could just take that soil and continuously get good food out of it and uh, with very little work cool that's pretty neat yeah it's a love story it's a tale as old as time a tale as old as time is that beauty and the beast i think so it's not ferngully it's
0: definitely not ferngully
1: robin williams would not sing that well he might
0: actually i i, I don't know i got confused was he in that movie ferngully no beauty and the beast no that's okay. the
1: joke he's just robin williams we keep bringing up robin williams <laughs> dehydrated robin williams brought to you by lowry's no 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 free range pigs on robin williams you're about
0: to get a phone call again
1: probably so yeah Obviously, all this sounds complicated because we're talking about these different biomes, their different utility, utilizing multiple tree crops and multiple species. And we just keep, at least to me, feels like we keep stacking things on this and making it more and more complicated because we keep saying, hey, we've talked about all these things. Well, let's add one more. So while all of this stuff sounds really scary, one of the biggest challenges I think for a lot of people is saying, okay, I understand all these concepts, but how do I do this and also like understand it within a linear space? So, you know, if you're planting, say, 10 chestnuts for their future size, they might be 25 feet away. Those trees might only be four feet tall today, and the rest is just grass. And maybe you don't want to take the risk that animals keep damaging them. So, you don't want to run any animals through. So, what do you do? Like, that seems like a giant waste of time. And, you know, it's the one thing we don't have. Like, you don't want to wait. 10, 20 years, depending on exactly what you're planting to actually get a, a harvest out of them. So like, what do you do? And one of the simplest agroforestry techniques to understand is this practice called alley cropping. Alley cropping is the growing of a row of trees or shrubs or maybe even both between annual crop fields. The trees that seem to do best in this type of system are trees with tap roots. The reason being is you don't want something with shallow roots that'll reach out into the, the annual crop area. So between those trees, you want something that's going to go down because then they're going to be competing with whatever your, you know, high production annual crop might be, whether that's asparagus, which is not an annual, but, um, is commonly used in these systems or tomatoes or whatever it is. You don't want something that's also going to compete with those for those nutrients and water. So there's a couple of ways you can help your trees not have these problems. And one of them is to use a subsoiler along the row of trees every year, starting with the very first summer after they're planted. This clips any of the young roots that attempt to go after those crop nutrients. It keeps roots within the tree row, and it really encourages them to dive in deeper. If you wait until the tree is older before subsoiling, those roots are much bigger and can cause a lot more damage because of that practice.
0: Yeah, so you got to get them young, because you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I'm never going to get these farming metaphors right. I sound downright
1: creepy. You got to bark up the right beehive with your goats. I I don't know. I got nothing. Sorry. I was hoping I could come up with something that sounded fancy, but not. We're both terrible farmers. is what this is. Yeah, don't don't hire me to farm. It's the lesson here. Don't listen to anything I say. You failed miserably if you're still listening right now.
0: I'm going to return these overalls. (sighs) Fine.
1: So when we do these uh, root pruning of the alley crop trees every year, it again helps them dig their roots deeper and keeps your annual crops doing really well while these trees start to get a little bit bigger. But it's not as simple as saying, oh, these trees are going to grow to a maximum height of 50 feet. So this is how I'm going to space them out and yada, yada, yada. As we had talked about in previous episodes... The, especially the forest ecology one, I think it's like episode six or something like that, that um, the the site conditions can really dictate how big that tree is actually going to be. That's why when you buy a tree, it'll say maximum size, 40 to 60 feet or something like that, because those local conditions will really dictate based on soil type, You know where the water table is, where you are in terms of like a hill, if you're north, south, east side, And all those different things can impact what that maximum possible size is for that tree. And further, as we think about these tree sizes, we have to start thinking about with that tree size, how big of shade is it going to throw? So that shade density is really important, especially when we start thinking about the orientation of the rows. So there's actually been some research on this from the University of Missouri-Columbia that have shown that in the northern climate, trees oriented east to west show slightly greater tree crop yields, but they're not necessarily statistically significant, which means they exist, but they're not something that's gonna make a meaningful change in what you expect to harvest based on all the other things that can impact your total harvest. So on a, say, like square flat field, it might make sense to orient the tree rows that way, But in most of North America, with all the other things that exist, the landscapes and all those other challenges that come into play, it's not that important. And it's really important to think more about stopping those wind tunnels. So considering prevailing winds, it's more useful to think about these windbreaks. And of course, with those key lines, that's where you can get that ideal shape. Yeah, I got a windbreak for you, you windbag. Are you saying that I am wind or are we taking a break?
0: Nah, man. Why would we take a break? Hey, you. Do you like food? What the f- fu- Do you like being alive? Ah. Uh, Do you like guns? How did you get m- then what the fuck are you doing? Why aren't you listening to the Poor Pro's Almanac? Who are you? The Poor Pro's Almanac talks goats, guns, and country- p- Not music. Uh, learn to shear sheep twice as fast as your ass. Hold on. Smash that subscribe button on the YouTube to watch their how-to videos and content, and visit the website at poorpros.com to learn more. Dude, just get the fucking. <laughs> well,
1: that was awfully suspicious timing, Elliot. "Quote unquote," wind breaks, Elliot.
0: Yeah. So where were we? Wind break ends.
1: Wind break ends.
0: What? What? I didn't do it.
1: What? What didn't you do?
0: Whatever you said.
1: Okay. So, no windbreaks. If you are working on or planning to develop a site that has first installed that keyline water management system, the rows of trees would be parallel with that keyline. So instead of having straight linear rows of trees, the trees will instead kind of gracefully sweep along the contour and would essentially reveal that natural shape of the landscape as it relates to the water table. If you're interested in that, we did a whole episode on it, like I said. The important thing to note is that the keyline rows of trees would still be parallel, as in each curving row maintains its distance from the other rows. Their crowns should cast a dappled shade. And again, if you think about the needs of the grass, you want to keep the shade between 40 and 60% to keep those dark, lush pastures. As the livestock move through the system, they're almost always in partial shade. There's no need to bunch up under one tree when there's a really hot day because the shade is spread evenly. Now, again, when we think about the multi-species, the livestock are gonna eat their preferred forage and then quickly move to the next paddock. Now, there are two ways to get to that ideal. One, as we previously mentioned, is to plant trees in your pasture. For an already existing rotational grazing paddock system, all that needs to be done is to plant a row of trees alongside the currently existing permanent fence. The flip side, which might seem easier but is in many ways more difficult, is working with an older forest. Sometimes folks don't like the idea of cutting down trees in a forest just to plant other trees, or in general thinking about bringing in animals that might damage that understory. It's worth remembering that a very large percentage of the forested land in our United States is not really a functional forest. The original forest is long since gone, and the trees in existence now are usually grown with invasive species such as honeysuckle, multiflora rose, european buckthorn, garlic mustard, and japanese barberry, just to name a few. And often even if some of the canopy is native, they're almost universally homogenous early succession forest filled with fast-growing, low-producing trees like my farm. I have primarily white pines, which is whatever. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there, this is not obviously a claim to say we should go grazing in old growth forests or anything like that. Um, if, if you happen to live someplace where those things exist, like don't do that. But uh, for most of us, that's not the case. For many of the non-forests that we're talking about, they were former agricultural fields that have been long since abandoned. They're mostly being suburbanized at this point. So while these former agricultural fields have been abandoned and these forests are starting to take over, it may be hundreds of years until they're really a true closed canopy forest. But for now, they're just this tangle of briars and again, all these invasive species that provide very few ecological services aside from making oxygen and providing habitat for some birds and raccoons. And that doesn't mean you don't keep anything, like we were saying about hedgerows. There is some utility, but not at the scale that it exists today. So without grazing or periodic fires as... Traditionally, these landscapes have been managed. The underbrush has grown up in these former grasslands, uh, much of it regeneration of the overstory, which are often trees trapped, unable to progress in the natural forest succession because of those previous clear cutting periods when forests had been cleared for agricultural practices, regrown, and then cleared again, and then regrown at this point. As the shade in these sites has increased, the once abundant grasses have disappeared And again, an overabundance of trees has developed. Sites that are naturally droughty, and keep in mind with climate change, how that's quickly changing, are not able to support many of these super dense trees per acre. And many of the trees grow really poorly and slowly. These sites become increasingly stressed. And especially, like I said, with climate change, what we're starting to see is entire sections of forest that are dying all at once.
0: Is it just me, or does that remind you of California a bit?
1: What's a California?
0: On the, on the left coast.
1: On the left coast? Yeah. I'm just looking at my arm. I'm trying to figure what, what the coast of my left is.
0: The left coast of, of, the, of America.
1: Oh, of America. Yes. So I won't name any names, but there are definitely farmers in California who are making a lot of money talking about how they're saving the world by doing this exact thing on purpose, planting large, dense food forests, quote-unquote, that are not naturally designed for their local ecology that can't support them because of the water tables. So since I don't want to get sued by anyone but Lowry's, I'm not going to talk about
0: it. Chicken guano.
1: Yeah, so Elliot's calling me chicken shit, I guess. I mean, that would be rude. Yeah, so the moral of the story is Trees are great, but shouldn't be everywhere. Water tables matter. Hashtag water tables matter. Elliot's not impressed with my hashtagging ability.
0: No, I was going to make a joke about taking the Lorax down a pick or two.
1: I mean, we did have a meme that got taken down about the Lorax, actually. Did,
0: Did we really? Yeah. That's awesome. It was
1: one about him being armed to protect trees. So, yeah, fuck the Lorax or something. I don't know. So for those of you not trying to drain the world's largest, <laughs> what?
0: Andy hates the fucking Lorax.
1: <laughs> I mean, not if it's Danny DeVito. Like, you can't hate Danny DeVito, even if he is the Lorax. I didn't, I didn't see the movie. Was it good? Dude, come on. What? You got, like, nieces, or nephews, something. Yeah, go
0: watch think, the Lorax. I don't think they watched the Lorax. I forgot my, my niece watches one movie. Whenever we watch movies, it's the same movie.
1: Well, it's got to be the Lorax now. Uh, so, for those of you not trying to drain the world's largest aquifer, let's keep going. Now, we haven't spent a ton of time talking about trees, really, unless they're planted in the wrong spots. But sometimes that wrong spot can be a little more specific. And what I mean is really dealing with trees that are dioecious or plants that are only have male or female sexual parts. This could mean you plant five, say, mulberry trees and only one of them fruits. It's pretty unlikely that you're going to have that male to female ratio, but it could technically happen. Well, if you're doing it for the fruit, you're really in trouble. But with a species like mulberries, they have incredibly edible leaves. Right, Elliot? Mm Mm-hmm. Tasty, bitter, dark. His bitter greens.
0: bitter greens. Getting swole. I got to figure out how to like cook them or something. I just can't be eating raw mulberry leaves.
1: You think that?
0: What? Yeah, I think that. I feel like an idiot. I'm, nobody else is doing this.
1: Not yet, trendsetter, Ugh. visionary. I
0: I I thought that about myself, and I I actually hate it now.
1: <laughs> uh yeah. So mulberry leaves. So cattle, sheep, goats, and hogs all love to eat the leaves of mulberries. and Elliot. And they're more nutritious than alfalfa and come with this really great byproduct of mulberry fruit. So even if you're not getting those fruits, the mulberry leaves themselves are super high in protein, and the, the berries themselves are also super high in protein for a berry. And of course, they have a ton of sugar because they're a berry, and, they're, and that just makes them the super high-energy livestock feed. So the word of the day today is going to be berry instead of brittleness, I guess. We can talk about
0: mulberries. That's fine. Yeah. The white ones, uh, my, my wife and told me we ate some last night again, and they taste like apricots when they're dried out.
1: I think it's, they taste like cotton candy. It's
0: similar to apricots, I think. It's pretty,
1: it's still tasty. I like it. And
0: then the, um, are they black or what are they?
1: The black mulberries? Black
0: mulberries. Those taste kind of like raisins, but they're still tasty.
1: Yeah, I think they're like, they taste kind of like blackberries to me. Yeah. Um. So, if you haven't had a mulberry, go have some. There's trees, like, everywhere, and you just don't know it because Yeah, just go
0: eat random berries off of trees, guys.
1: That's my advice, and I will go down with my words.
0: Uh, That's the end of us.
1: That's the end of us and Lowry's. Good luck, everybody. Lowry's. Good luck. You hear that, Lowry's? You're going to have to back us up here, buddy. They're not going to back us up, are they?
0: No. Okay. Dead in the water.
1: So, to bring this back, I guess, to mulberry trees that are not going to abandon us, or with those male trees that you're not worried about reducing fruit production, you can trim them back really heavily, and you can feed them the the leaves to your livestock, and they'll still produce enough um, pollen in order to for the females to be able to produce lots of fruit. So you get benefits of both worlds. You can have these females that'll produce tons and tons of fruit, and those males that you do have, you can trim them back repeatedly. And ultimately, you probably end up either, um, well, it's kind of a complicated conversation about how mulberries can change gender and all that stuff.
0: What isn't with you? What? What isn't a complicated conversation with you? Nothing's ever easy.
1: I guess. You've been talking to my wife, haven't you? No. (laughs) Uh, So, as I was saying before Elliot... Rudely reminded me that I make everything complicated, that it is complicated. And, you know, while you could graft female branches to mulberries, I do believe they'll actually change sex.
0: The branch will? Yeah. Or the tree will?
1: The branch will.
0: That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. So um, if you put a female branch on a male, I don't think they'll stay female always. Sometimes they will. I'm not 100% sure. It's really complicated. And it's like kind of above my knowledge set i guess you could say um i think we're going to cut all this out so with mulberries if you do have a bunch of males and a female you can keep one of the males cut down the other ones or even if you don't want to cut them down because you want production for fruit you can use them for a bunch of different things you can grow mulberry trees for um, firewood make a great firewood they also um, are really great for certain types of mushrooms so you can cut them when they get to a certain size and use them for propagating mushrooms. And again, you still can get the benefits of tree hay out of it. So the idea is that you can try to take advantage of what they can do for you, even if it's not necessarily what you originally thought. Like I said, mulberries, you can cut them down and they, they coppice and pollard, and they can grow up to like 20 feet of growth in like a couple years. So this isn't the only species that can do that. Things like willows and alders also have this great benefit. And there's tons of different species that are particularly good for things like animal browse. So black locusts, honey locusts, maples, and birches are all really great trees that have multiple benefits, but can also be used for tree hay or tree fodder, whatever term you might use. Of course, it's important to keep in mind your local ecological conditions and what are native species, especially keystone species that you want to keep around like oaks which I don't hear getting talked about very often in terms of like food forests, but are particularly important for local ecology. And at this point, we have a sense of some of the trees and the row structure and the orientation of how the animals graze the site. Our goal is to mature into a near-closed canopy forest. Again, keep in mind that the livestock forage needs at least 40% light to thrive, so we don't want it to get too dense. And again, it's important to think about how we're going to manage those trees. Are we traditionally going to be cutting them down, trimming them, or are we going to let them get to that full, full size? And are we going to shape them at all? So there's a lot of different things that go into how big that tree is going to be and how that's going to impact things like shade. When it comes down to the grasses, aside from a few rugged sedges, not many do well in a densely shaded environment. And it's something that there hasn't been a lot of research done to selectively breed for any of those things. So there's a long way we have to go in terms of figuring out what kind of grasses and forbs we can put in these types of sites. So while grasses may grow in some of these spaces, there's definitely going to be parts that just it's not going to work and you're not going to be able to have grasses.
0: Okay, so what about that trickier flip side? And if we're working in a pretty dense forest or an old forest and we're not trying to get rid of any more trees?
1: So if you've got this really dense area, say, you've got some black walnuts and there's like this underbrush of pawpaws that produce tons of food, but gets this really dense shade between the two trees. Um, one of the things you can think about is bringing in things like mushrooms. So mushrooms do really well in darker areas. And again, you can utilize some of what might be considered a quote unquote waste product, those logs that are smaller, that can bring in another phase of the cycle of life, essentially. And the, and essentially what I'm talking about is like the decomposition cycle. So obviously our livestock don't have that much interest, although watch out because ducks will. This is something that can be particularly useful in like your northern parts of the site where you might have that heavier shade. And if you're planting your larger species on the north to reduce shading across the rest of the landscape, you're really maximizing your shade in one particular part. So the rest of your site can get more sun. The idea is that instead of hunting for edible species where nature might put it, and having to go foraging all the time to find these types of things, by managing the forest this way and intentionally creating the conditions for things like mushrooms or other, you know, cool-loving plants that grow out in the wild, uh, we're we're bringing that into our farming system. And in doing this, we're really doing what's quintessential to being human, where we're managing a landscape to allow it to do its thing, but within this uh, framework that we've put up based on the site's natural conditions. We're, we're helping it maximize its utility while being pretty hands-off, really. And that's, that's pretty important when we start thinking about you know managing a site and not just necessarily using domesticated animals.
0: Yeah, you hear that, guys? We finally domesticated the Wild Andy. Andrew. Andro. Which is the Greek prefix for man, so that fits. This works out.
1: He-man. Am I He-man? It's getting, my hair's getting long enough. Burly. I don't remember him having a beard. Or
0: a suit. You're one hairy mother... You know, you're hairy.
1: Hairy mother clucker? Yeah, I believe that's a right. phrase? That's right. Uh, so, like, for example, while I'm not domesticated, don't worry, uh, that doesn't mean I'm against domestication and when we talk about these things like managing landscapes nature might only plant like a handful of ramps in a particular area but if we use things like intensive beds we can make that into thousands of plants per acre while also having a tree crop that's natural and appropriate for that site and we're maximizing the benefit underneath it the same with mushrooms now nature might scatter a few puffballs here or there or morels or whatever But we can, as a forest farmer, create the conditions to produce large quantities of these things in a really small space. So while planting specific species uh, and running domesticated animals that fill natural spaces and ecological systems, that's not all we can do to be, well, human in our ecology. We can do below the soil what we do above and help accelerate and mimic those natural systems. One of the things that we can do is think about how do I bring in the what's called indigenous microorganisms into my site? So if we think about ecology and evolution, we've talked about this a lot with climate change, trees have evolved with the bacteria, fungi, and so on that's within the soil for thousands and thousands of years. They've become super efficient with one another, with very particular types of bacteria and fungi. Now, We don't know the first thing about that in terms of like the species that have been documented in their relationships, and we're just starting to learn a little bit about that. But what we can do, even if we don't understand the full science behind it, is take the natural bacteria and fungi that are around trees out in the wild and bring them back to the species that we have on our site. So if we're planting, say, new oak trees or hickories or whatever it might be, we can go and collect the leaf litter, and the, some of the soil that has those bacteria and fungi, and essentially propagate them in this process known as Korean natural farming, and then bring them back and put them in our farm and allow them to take over and accelerate that efficient process of you know, mining for nutrients and converting things into soluble forms for plants. And that's something we're going to cover in a few short episodes.
0: Hey, man, it's a little bit too early for us to be getting into the next few episodes, so why don't you take a breath, and we'll finish Pastra here.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think I'm going to let the uh, sponsors talk for me. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. This is Andy from the Poor Prols Almanac. Hopefully, you're enjoying the podcast so far, and right now, I'm talking to you from a commercial in a Poor Prols Almanac podcast. I'm sure you're enjoying the show and maybe even enjoying some of our ridiculous ads. We are able to keep our episodes ad-free and keep the lights on here because of support from listeners like you. If you think we're adding valuable perspective to the subjects of agriculture, ecology, climate change, and politics, then please consider giving us some support on Venmo, Ko-Fi, Patreon, or PayPal, all of which can be found at our website, poorpols.com. Please don't make me go to Jeff for money. Jeffrey, Jeffrey pays all. Jeffrey, 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 Jeff, 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 Jeff. Jeffrey. Jeffrey
0: Who the fuck is Jeff? It's Jeff.
1: You know, Geoff. Never heard of one? Nope. Well then. Mr. Robin Williams. Brought to you by Lowry's. I heard of that guy.
0: And I also heard of that guy.
1: Lowry's? He's Uh, a guy?
0: Well, that
1: salty thing is salty. What if my pig's name is Jeff? Oh, now I have to get a pig named Jeff. And then I can slaughter it. Jesus.
0: That got real dark. Are we really going to make our own meat candy? Because that would be awesome.
1: Jeffrey Bezos? Oh, I'm going to name my pig Jeffrey Bezos. I'm going to 100% do it. I'm going to make... Jeff Bacon I'm pretty sure Jaken, I'm
0: pretty sure you're going to get outsmarted by a pig.
1: Gunna? Yeah. already have. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, terrible farmer. Why terrible. nobody listen to him? No. I am the worst. So, speaking of things that fuck with me and fuck shit up, trees. Am I right? We've messed with them for a long time and you probably know this process by the term cultivar. And this is one of my favorite weird esoteric soapboxes to get on.
0: Oh man, I'm getting Andy a stool right now. Stand up.
1: Want to know what's wild? Every cultivar of the fruits and nuts that we've ever eaten that's like a named cultivar is a cutting of a cutting of a cutting that goes for, in some cases, hundreds of years because you can't let them crossbreed or you're going to lose that specific flavor resistance whatever it might be so what that means is genetically speaking biologically speaking that fruit tree that apple whatever it is that you eat that's been around for 400 years that heirloom whatever that evolved with bacteria and fungi and bugs and pests and parasites and all that stuff from 300 years ago 400 years ago and as we know shit's changed our The biology in the world and in the forests and the farms and all those things where these trees came from aren't the same as they used to be. And our solution to that has been to spray and to do all these other things to try to manage those pests so we can continue to harvest these fruits. Now, what's happening is that we're running out of options to protect these things because we keep having to change and the pests and diseases keep getting stronger and evolve in new ways that can it get to those trees and essentially decimate them. Now, that doesn't mean every single cultivar is, like, a problem, but a lot of them really struggle to continue to exist in the modern era. So, like, the Macintosh apple, which hasn't genetically changed in 200 years, it really doesn't have any more tricks that it can play to stop parasites or disease or anything like that. So, you know, it, it hasn't been able to evolve while everything else around it has continued to evolve and it's just been trapped so it can't continue to compete so like I don't know like what's that phrase?
0: adapt or die evolve or die
1: maybe I don't know I was thinking more like all the leaves are brown is that the mamas and the papas? and the sky is gray is that the mamas and papas? I went for a walk
0: we're not doing this buddy
1: fine don't say I never tried. You wanted to be in a band in high school. Come on.
0: You wanted to be in the band. You know what? Mm-mm. Not getting into this here.
1: <laughs> My point is that it's time for the Macintosh to go on a walk, as the mamas and the papas might say.
0: Wow. That was a great end of that rant about heirloom.
1: Consider that. No,
0: nah, it came out of nowhere. I didn't know what you were going to say.
1: <laughs> so it's time to bring the apple back into this natural stream of the evolution of life and, you know, discover those genetic variants that are resistant to pests and diseases that exist today. And in order to do that, we need to start thinking about planting seedlings and allowing that that genetic uh, diversity to flourish and to naturally deal with these issues that exist. So you're saying pests and disease are good? I'm not saying they're good. I'm saying they're a part of the system, if that makes sense. And trying to pretend they're not is it's not going to be successful.
0: Yeah. You try selling that bit nowadays.
1: Yeah. No, I'm just going to make podcasts instead here, here. If you're trying to do these seedlings and your particular apple tree that you seed gets infested and dies, then it's not a variant you want. So, oh, well. And unfortunately that's part of the game and you should probably plant like a bunch of seedlings so that, you know, you you can just accept that some are going to die. And if you're short on space, you can actually grow seedlings in really tight quarters and also graft them and start to accelerate that process. But that whole grafting process and thinking about genetics is probably an episode for another day, but just something I want to like put in the back of your mind, much like Lowry's. Of course, it's another episode. We got episodes coming out the wazoo, y'all. You know, you say that like you don't love it. You just want to spend time with me and talk about plants.
0: Yeah, I'm having a great time. Listen to the words, not the tone. (laughs) I'm having a great time. He's having a great time. I'm having a great time. Yeah. Help. Help me. Don't. I'm in a small room in a basement. Shh.
1: just butchered some chickens, and that's not a euphemism. No, it's not. (laughs) So what does all this look like and not Elliot in a basement? I think this is where people tend to get overwhelmed as to how to put all this stuff together. We're not just talking about, like I said, the fruit trees, the nuts, the grazing, the grasses, the shading, these marginalized spaces, thinking about heirlooms versus you know, bringing in new cultivars that we can create ourselves and grafting and selection process and all of these things. It's a lot. And you probably noticed at this point, we haven't really gone too deep into these specifics because it's important to get a good handle on the basic fundamentals of what these things should look like, what to be aware of, and to just know what you don't know as we try to figure out some of the logistical challenges of building these systems and encapsulating all of this in one place. We can space our trees out based on the variety we choose, site conditions, and what our plans for those trees are. And are we looking for trees that are going to be dropping fruit or nuts, mostly for animal feed? or is the animal feed just an added perk to something that feeds us? How much tree hay are we cutting? What, what is the shape of the tree when we cut it, and how will that impact light penetration, which impacts not just the grasses, but also the fruit itself, if it's a fruit-bearing tree? If we're planting things for tree hay, we might plant them only six inches or a foot apart, while if we're planting them for wood or whatever it might be, we might want to space those out a little bit more. And all of this kind of ties together and is a little bit more of a complicated conversation that starts with understanding these fundamentals. So the following two episodes, we'll be covering some of this content on managing the trees themselves, specifically around tree hay, coppicing, and pollarding. So don't be frustrated if you don't have those answers yet. But your goal should be around what the ecological system where you live should be and how that could impact what you would want. If you want, say, to grow meat, which animals are best for the local ecological conditions and start with the species that'll eat the trees that already exist or can exist on your site. So your list of 80 trees that you might want on your site will probably whittle down to about 15 or so pretty quick. And again, that plays into how large they get, why are you growing them, are they local to your ecology, how will they do with the soil type that you have and so on and so on. Further, depending on what part of the property Wet places, dry places, shady places, and so on. You can start to line your trees with the natural conditions there. Lastly, think about your nut and fruit drop periods so that you can move your animals through so they can either harvest the cleanup when unhealthy fruit is dropped before the harvest to reduce infections and pests, or if you're planning on running the animals through to harvest all of the fruit because you don't really want to eat it. Obviously, now you can see how stacking these things and our understanding of the site conditions on grow capacity and how all these things can play together. We've covered this content a bit in the Designing Food Systems with Scales of Permanence episode, specifically around the layout component. So if you'd like a deeper dive on that specific piece, go check out that episode. And once you've got all that figured out, then comes the fun part, trying them. So for example, on roughly an acre, you could run two ewes with lambs, a ram, 10 ducks or so, 10 or so chickens, and about five turkeys. That's just around 1.2 AUs, and that's animal units, and that's roughly, theoretically, should be around on a good site. 1 AU is about 1 acre of animal weight that the site can carry. And, of course, a lot of that depends on how you're developing these figures.
0: I think we're going to have to give people a heads up to grab pen and paper, and there might be an alarm for animal algebra.
1: There is a test.
0: This has to be hard to like, listen to, though, and keep all the numbers in your head, so maybe people can write it down and make sense of it or something, because I, I, I couldn't do that. Elliot
1: failed the test. He's trying to just make, make you feel better when you fail I it too. fail
0: it every time. You he know, starts you talking were, about like,
1: AUs. You were good in high school, and I wasn't, so come on. I, you should you, be knocking it, me out. It's,
0: it's use it or lose it. I worked at a bank for three years.
1: So you lost it at the bank?
0: Yeah. Work, working at the bank was terrible.
1: Don't work at banks. Just burn them. They just want you to lie and lie and lie. I couldn't take it anymore. Brought to you by Lowry's. I'm I'm still salty about it. (laughs) He's salty AF.
0: I am. Messed me up. But hold on. Going back to the animal algebra. When you rattle off a bunch of numbers, do you think people can really keep all that in their head? Or do they just listen to your sultry voice at that time?
1: Mostly my sultry voice. But when they do want to listen... I think it just kind of, it's not about necessarily remembering the numbers, but just more like contextualizing like what's capable. So it's not necessarily like, okay, if I have an acre, I'm going to do these exact things. It's more of, okay, now I can visualize a little bit of what, what that might look like. Am I talking like four cows on an acre or are we talking like in this case, a couple sheep some, okay. you know, and some other shit?
0: So we got two ewes with lambs, a ram. 10 ducks, 10 chickens, and five turkeys, which is 1.2 AUs in case you missed it.
1: Yeah, which is like an acre and a quarter of fully developed silvopasture. And, you know, for context, uh, during the summer, that's like just under half a gallon of milk, a cup of cream, butter and cheese, and almost two dozen eggs a day, as well as long term, that 100 pounds of lamb, 40 pounds of turkey, 20 pounds of duck, and 20 pounds of chicken, all converted from grass, leaves, and rotting fruit, and that's, of course, when the system's at full capacity. So, not only that, but you're also going to get those fruits and nuts that are harvested. And, of course, all of this is hypothetical because it's never that simple or clear-cut or consistent. You have late spring freezes, you've got cool summers, dry summers, and so on, they are going to impact how good of a harvest you have. Further, with specific species, you have things called mast years where you get a huge surplus. In other years where you may not harvest anything at all. That's some of the things you want to keep in mind. And if you want to produce more and you don't want to buy inputs, one of the things that I like to do is you know, grab my, my loppers and jump in my station wagon and pull over on the side of the road and harvest all the black locusts that nobody likes. Elliot's shaking his head.
0: Yeah, the mental image of that. It's actually pretty
1: funny. Oh, the looks I get.
0: Yeah, some might say you look like a popper, but we say nay he's but a pro. i love how you snuck in a little bit of the animal algebra in there always with the au's and ducks i think that's nice it's funny i think it's funny won't let it go no it's funny to me
1: yeah so there's a lot of ways you can get around spending money on your animals and one of them is free-ranging them by you being the one free-ranging with some loppers First- gotta do what you gotta do right Got to do what you got to do and make the road safer by cutting shit that's on the side of the road.
0: Yeah, we out here doing it, y'all.
1: Doing it for for America. We
0: out here doing it. For America. Freedom. Now who's lying? Yeah.
1: (laughs) So Mark Shepard is, uh, in his book, Restoration Agriculture, provides a really interesting example of one of his systems. And I'm going to bring this up because I think it just kind of, again, highlights an alternative and contextualizes, like, how many trees are we talking and that kind of stuff. So, he proposes a one-acre field that's nine rows of edible woody plants with a 23-foot wide alley between each row. These rows would be planted as followed. Five rows of chestnuts planted 12 feet apart. Beneath each chestnut would be a row of red currants planted below and one grapevine trellis on each chestnut tree. Four of the nine rows would be an apple and hazelnut row with apples planted every 24 feet and hazelnuts as an understory. Raspberries would be planted on the south side of the entire row and one grape trellis on each apple tree. The spatial arrangement would result in the following for one acre. 34 apple trees, 86 chestnut trees, 120 grapevines, 208 hazelnut bushes, 416 raspberry canes, and 520 redcurrant bushes. LH, I think I broke them.
0: Are you going to bring in tree algebras just on the test?
1: This was the extra credit.
0: I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. No more tests.
1: No more tests.: Is hashtag. my nose bleeding? Like what? That might be chicken blood. <laughs> so personally, I wouldn't do it this way. I'm not a big fan of the vine suggestion for reasons I've covered before. But again, I just wanted to put that in context and give another example of what could be done with an acre. In this example, he said it would produce 5.978 million calories per acre nearly double what a high-yield optimal cornfield would produce, which is by far the most calorie-dense monocrop grown today. That 5.978 million calories is enough to feed 82 people for a year at 2,000 calories a day, while not requiring, theoretically, a drop of insecticide, herbicide, or risk of late freeze, or early frost, and relying primarily on trees that once established will be in place for hundreds of years. So, interesting claim. Further, these systems could be put in place in lands that are considered otherwise not able to be farmed, steep landscapes, waterlogged areas, and so on, where utilizing the right trees for the right place can not only thrive, but provide new diversity for our food systems.
0: Yeah, not a Taco Bell in sight, right? But it still sounds nice, actually. We're going to do an episode where we make like a farmer's crunch wrap, though, because that sounds awesome to me. And I also just got hungry.
1: We're going to make some mulberry leaves. We're going to stuff them. With acorns, acorn flour, or maybe we'll shred some mulberry leaves.
0: We can make a tortilla out of acorn flour
1: with mulberry leaves. You're getting more protein out of it.
0: Well, I mean, we got to have something to hold the crunch wrap.
1: The leaves—that's what they're there for. They're like the uh, like you know the lettuce wraps, except it's mulberries.
0: I want my leaves in there though.
1: It's okay. got to
0: be like a crunch wrap. Like I'm gonna make a crunch wrap.
1: I can't think of a good mulberry crunch wrap pun. Sorry, I'm terrible at this You're now.
0: talking about puns. I'm talking about like actual food. I mean both. Listen, I don't joke about my food, Andy. You hear my serious tone? I'm using my serious tone now. I want my farmer's crunch wrap.
1: You get your farmer's crunch wrap when you pass the test. <laughs>
0: I'm going I'm going to stab somebody with a number two pencil. Uh,
1: but not number one, because you failed the test. Oh. Uh-huh. So at this point, we've probably got your brain firing on all cylinders. Elliot has definitely got smoke coming out of his ears. And hopefully all of this is starting to tie everything together that this whole podcast has been about into one general cohesive narrative. In the next episode, well, actually, that's not entirely true. The next episode is going to be an interview. But in the following episode after that, we're going to dive into some of the tree management pieces that we've been hinting at. Until next time, I'll be trying to get Elliot on board with his mamas and the papas acapella mulberry lowry's group and maybe we're gonna make some acorn tortillas with some mulberry i don't know i'm running acorn tortillas acorn tortillas yeah with gotta do it. Sauce.
0: i can't think of what else to do with acorn flour i hope it if anybody have any experience with acorn flour let yes. me know right, i would like to know if you can make tortillas out of it because i'm gonna do some legwork and make a don't farmer's me. crunch wrap with whatever I, food I find in Andy's backyard.
1: Do you know what work it is to prep acorns. Yeah, that's what I said. I'm going to do some legwork.
0: I literally caught oh, like yeah, claim that first. Yeah, gonna, it's going to be some it. work. Oh yeah. I hate it. All right. Well, I'll, I'll do it.
1: Oh God! Somebody save me.
0: There's no safe. There's no safety for you. There's no safety. You're a poor farmer, you're going to be chasing your smart pigs and smarter ducks. Pigs are,
1: yeah, no. Are you asking if pigs are ducks?
0: No, I said you're going to be outsmarted by your pigs and ducks. Oh, yeah. that no, The ducks already do it. So. You're, a, you're a poor farmer.
1: Yeah, so.
0: These the are We're poor, brown. poor,
1: poor And the sky is gray. And the
0: sky is gray. I went for a walk. I went for a walk.
1: This is probably sounding amazing over our outro music.
0: It's not just me.
1: This is Andy, and this is Elliot, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Goodbye. Bye.